Welcome to the latest View from the Loch podcast. My guest was born in Perthshire, Scotland, and on the 1st of January 1975, became executive director of the European Tour, replacing John Jacobs. Served in that capacity until 2004, whereby the, grew, the tour grew from 17 to 45 events, added the Challenge and European Seniors Tour as well. Awarded the Ambassador of Golf Award by the PGA Tour 2006 and was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame 2013. Ken Schofield, you're very welcome. Thank you, Bill. It's a real pleasure for me to join you today. I've got so many, many happy memories of uh, being at Loch Lomond uh, for all of the tournaments that we had the privilege to uh, stage there. Uh, of course, under the wonderful auspices of Lyle Anderson, Phil Schneider, and their colleagues. I know they were a ter they were terrific visionaries, Ken. You know, uh, and what they created at Loch Lomond really unparalleled. I think. Yes, I, I, I certainly felt that from the very first moment that, uh, through Sandy Jones, sadly the late Sandy Jones introduced uh, his his friend uh, uh, his very good friend Jim MacDonald um, to Lyle Anderson and Phil Schneider and myself and we met uh, uh, at Heathrow Airport uh, shortly before the I think the 1994 open at Turnbury and then we had a follow-up meeting in our wagon uh, at at Turnbury at that open and from there, Things just flourished and always, always did flourish. Yes, it's very interesting, Ken. You know, obviously, you've over 30 years as the executive director of the European Tour. Um, and, and what was it about Lyle, you know, and Phil that, that actually you thought, yes, we can do business. This is going to be good for the European Tour. Well, I think you used one of the, 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 the real adjectives, Bill, when you said they were visionaries. Of course, they were all of that, but they were entirely genuine. They were the, the mm -hmm. fellows that uh, said they were going to do something and they then delivered. Uh, and that was our experience of them uh, then. Uh, Phil, Phil Schneider remains a very, very dear friend and uh, to, to, uh, to this very day. And uh, we simply uh, wish them uh, all the very best as they go about their uh, different uh, scenarios uh, and chores these days. Well, well, Lyle will be over in September, Ken, and, and maybe we can get you to, to pop along or you're welcome at any time, of course, back at, back at Loch Lomond. Um, but, uh, you know, Lyle and Missy and the family are still doing yes. uh, very well. So it's, it'll be lovely to well, see that's, that's That's wonderful. I think the last time I had the real pleasure and privilege of seeing Lyle was probably at Augusta, where, of course, uh, he, uh, he, he was certainly a member of, of, of the Green Jackets. Yes. I, for you, was there a Scottish Open at Loch Lomond that was particularly memorable? Or was it really just the whole package? Was there anything or anybody that stood out for you, Ken? Well, the whole package certainly was a great joy, Bill. Uh, and of course, the very, very first tournament there in 1996, which we played in September, um, 
I guess it was the Loch Lomond Invitational because there had been a, a final concluding uh, Scottish Open at Carnoustie uh, earlier in the year. Uh, but that first tournament at Loch Lomond sticks in my mind because it announced on, on the European and indeed to become the world stage, the great Dane, Thomas Bjorn, who was mm. uh, Loch Lomond's first champion. And, and of course, Thomas went on to have a wonderful, wonderful career, was very unfortunate not to get the the champion golfer of the year uh, crown at Royal St. George's um, some years later. But uh, we've got very, very fond memories of that starting point at Loch Lomond and all of the ones that then followed. It, it was golfing par excellence. Uh, that That's what uh, Loch Lomond stood for. And I guess under your missive today, still stands for very much so. Well, thank you, Ken. That's, that's very kind of you. Uh, I, I guess that the course has never been better with the, the sand capping project that has been complete. Um, and, you know, uh, David Cole and his team have done a terrific job there. Uh, and, and I think it's now presenting itself, you know, uh, definitely uh, nudging to the forefront of maybe coming back into tournament golf. That will be up to the members ultimately, but yes. it certainly is in very good shape to take something pretty serious uh, on. That's um, all the reports I get uh, down here from the Deep South, Bill. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 keep, uh, I, I keep in touch, of course, uh, with, with many, uh, many uh, golfers down here in the Surrey, uh, our own Surrey sandbelt, really. And yes. including, I would include Sunningdale uh, Golf Club uh, in that bracket, and of course, I think you have an, many of many international members at Loch Lomond. Yes, we do. Um, there's 200 uh, in total, just slightly over, and you know we've just got our first member from Iceland who has joined. Ah. Uh, so that makes it 32 different countries. Uh, which you know is is really unique. That in itself is is totally unique uh, as well. Absolutely. Now, Ken, you mentioned Sunningdale. This wasn't. I'm going off script slightly, uh, but I lived in a place called Taplow for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. I played I played cricket at Taplow uh, Cricket Club. Sandy Shaw was the next door neighbour, and Terry Wogan lived in the village actually of as well. That's right. Uh, and I, Yes, and I was living in, in, in sorry, working in London uh, just before I went into golf uh, management. So uh, now th there was a chap who lived, so there were six apartments and it was Walter Delamere's old house that had been uh, put, yeah, created six apartments from. And a chap below me, uh, and I cannot remember his name, but he was very friendly with Ted Dexter. And uh -huh. I know that Ted, Ted and him were in business together. Now, he said that uh, maybe he didn't, but he knew maybe possibly Ted and a few others played for Lord Lucan's one pound note. How, how, <laughs> and I don't know whether to believe him or not, if that, if that indeed was the case. Have, have you heard anything like that, Ken? I'm not uh, entirely certain that... Uh... Ted and Lord uh, Lord Lucan were were that good friends, Bill. But what I can tell you is Ted, Ted was not only, of course, a wonderful cricketer, uh, captain of captain of England, uh, of course, um, but 
with his company and his friend and colleague um, that you're referring to may have been a, a gentleman called Rainer Blanche, who was okay. uh, also a member of the Royal and Ancient uh, Golf Club of St. Andrews until his passing. And Ted yes. and Rainer um, brought equity and law into, into golf sponsorship because Ted always had a fascination for sporting statistics. Indeed, I think that he conceived the current uh, rankings for cricketers, be they batsmen or indeed bowlers. And when he brought equity and law into golf, he, the tournament that he did was based on birdies and eagles. And uh, I remember uh, a Scotsman uh, called Brian Marchbank. You may remember Brian Indeed. Marchbank, whose father, yeah. Ian, was a dear mm -hmm. friend. He was pro for many years at uh, Glen Eagles Hotel. And, and Brian certainly won the first one. In fact, he may have been the first two winners of the equity and law uh, finals at Royal Mid-Surrey Golf Club uh, 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 close to close to West London. Thank goodness. Well, but I don't uh, know. I don't know the story about Lord Lucan and Ted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not too sure uh, how true it is, but maybe if there is a member of Sunningdale, like to get in contact and, and say yes, that's true. <laughs> there is something you know with that story. Then that that would be quite good. I've always wondered about it, uh, but uh, anyway, I, I, I digress. I digress slightly. Ken, your your involvement uh, European tour is. Uh, a huge legacy. Um, you were really executive uh, director at a time of huge change and opportunity for the European Tour. Um, you know, all of a sudden there was a huge increase in tournaments and, and prize money. So I know people listening like to hear stats. So the prize money was roughly, I think, when you came on board, about six hundred thousand. And when you left, had increased to a hundred million pounds. So, what can you tell us about why was there an increase in tournaments, and then obviously the sponsorship followed? What was the catalyst? Well, I think there were a number of catalysts, uh, Bill. Quite frankly, I think firstly that uh, John Jacobs, of course, had set up uh, the modern tour. He'd really joined the Western uh, European. Uh, federations uh, to, to the professional golfing scene of Great Britain and Ireland at that time. I say Western Europe because, of course, there was still a Berlin Wall and behind mm. that wall and all the way to the east, I'm afraid there was no golf because the, the communists' uh, policies of the day prohibited the use of land for golf. So it was really West, it was the Western uh, European mainland joining together with uh, GB&I that uh, John created. And of course, he left a wonderful, wonderful footprint and his works gave us the opportunity to try to expand and enhance what uh, John had put in place. Uh, then, of course, there was a, a number of other factors that came into play, not least the wonderful, famous five five guys, as I call them, led by mm -hmm. Seve and including Bernard Langer, who's still going as strong today uh, on the on the Champions Tour um, as, a, as ever. Uh, Nick Faldo, Sandy Lyle and Ian Woosnam. Between them, they won 16 majors, 
they they played virtually their whole careers uh, on the European tour, and certainly from the moment Seve won, not just uh, the Open at Lytham in 79, following uh, Tony Jacklin's win 10 years earlier on that uh, grand Lancashire uh, links. But the big thing, I think, really, was that when in next April 1980, Seve won the Masters uh, for the first uh, of two occasions at Augusta. And I think that that started the belief for all of the others, the international players, and I would include Greg Norman and Nick Price in that group because they really cut their teeth uh, on the European tour in, in those days as well. And of course, I think that Seve's win in 1980 gave the others the belief that the great Americans, and my goodness, they were great Americans, uh, led by Jack, of course, in those days, yeah. then Tom Watson, Lee Trevino, all of that group um, were wonderful, wonderful American golfers of the time. And Seve's win there gave the others the belief that the great Americans could be beaten in their own backyard. And we then saw Bernard Langer win. We then saw four wonderful years when firstly Sandy Lyle, Nick Faldo, who retained the title uh, in 1990, and then Ian Woosnam, uh, completed the, 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 the foursome, if you like, by winning in, in 1991, all at Augusta. So I think these were huge catalysts, uh, as well as the turnaround in the Ryder Cup fortunes, uh, which I must pay tribute to Tony Jacklin, uh, mm. who came on board as non-playing captain from 1983 a narrow, a very narrow loss uh, at, at Palm Beach, and then of course stayed on board for 85, 87, and 89, and as captain never lost another Ryder Cup. And I yeah. think those those were those on the on the field of play, if you like, Bill. Those were the prime catalysts. I think uh, there were other huge uh, factors off the course in terms of the television arrangements, the arrival uh, of, uh, of replacement sponsors, because of course, throughout the 70s and into the 80s, the, the tobacco barns were prohibited uh, mm. by law from, from sponsoring, and they were then followed by the alcohol companies. So all of those had to be replaced, but the arrival of of television, and then in the 90s, the arrival, of course, of Sky, um, preceded by our all-encompassing uh, Volvo tour sponsorship. The arrival of Volvo gave our tour a tremendous shot in the arm because it provided, it provided not just the cash that was so vitally important, but they provided services such as the Volvo uh, practice ball ranges uh, that uh, we were able to have uh, via the, the, the Volvo's arrangements with Titleist, courtesy cars, of course, things that uh, we had not been used to in, on the European tour. All of those things uh, were brought in, in in Volvo's days. So they must be accorded and awarded a huge tribute for their 
um, coming into golf in such a big manner in the in the in the late eighties. All of those yeah. things contributed, Bill. Well, there's no doubt the profile was risen incredibly. TV, you know, I can I can remember actually being in Derbyshire, watching the Faldo Norman, uh, you know, well shootout, if I want want of a better word, at the Masters, uh, or, or Faldo Norman's collapse, I guess, really, um, and and Nick then holding everything together, and I was watching it. I am sure it was satellite TV. Uh, at the time, and it just seemed, you know, uh, I suppose music had MTV and sports at Sky, and just things seemed to be so vibrant and lively. And you're right, the famous five uh, were there. They were marketable sponsors falling over themselves to, you know, to get behind them. Uh, and of course, golf as and an image of golf uh, was uh, and is a very positive, positive sport. To be associated with so you know I, I understand you know how, how all that has come together but i have to ask you ken you mentioned tony jacklin what qualities did you see in tony i mean he was uh, and has been credited with being an inspiration uh with pulling the european team together to take on the americans narrowly lost as you alluded to the first one and that wasn't going to happen again so what did Tony have quality-wise? Well, he had many, many qualities, um, uh, Bill. Firstly, he was, of course, a major champion in his own right, uh, mm. winning at Lytham, uh, as we said earlier, in 1969, the Open Championship, and following within the year by winning the, the United States Open at Hazeltine uh, Hazel um, from, from gun to tape, if you like. He was never headed uh, from... from taking the lead in the first round. So I think the guys immediately uh, coming onto the Ryder Cup team would have that enormous respect for Tony, firstly, as a player. And then secondly, the, the facts are that at the 1983 Ryder, uh, sorry, Open Golf Championship, which was at Birtdale, Tony had been left off the team, the 1981 team, along with Seve, who had some issues with the tour in those days and unfortunately and sadly resigned from the tour in 1981. And Lord Derby did a wonderful thing at one of the Ryder Cup uh, uh, board meetings leading up to that Open Championship. He said only Tony should approach Seve because, of course, Seve is with Tom Watson, arguably the number one player in the world at that time, without question, uh, was going to be an enormous uh, assist uh, and advantage to have back in the fold of the Ryder Cup. But there was a lot of uncertainty because, of course, he was rightly very disappointed at being left off in 1981. Oh. And Tony went up. Uh, they were staying in the same hotel in Southport, at, at, the, at that Birkdale Open and Tony said uh, over breakfast he just passed Seve's table and he said I don't want an answer now he said and I know that you're still thinking that the Ryder Cup uh, will not be uh, perhaps on your landscape or, or indeed on your schedule but I want you to think about it 
The Ryder Cup is bigger than all of us, and that includes those of the Blazer guys, the Blazer mentality, which, if, if you like, would be myself and the, and the others on the committees. And the next morning, when Tony was passing Seve's breakfast table, Tony had said to him that he wanted Seve on the team and that the Ryder Cup obviously was bigger than any one of us. And he reminded Seve that he too, uh, as Tony Jacklin, had been left off that 1981 team. And the next morning, Seve said to Tony quietly, just count me in. And from that moment, as captain, uh, Tony was the inspiration, if you like, uh, the leader off outside the ropes. And Seve was his uh, commander with inside the ropes. And the, the two of them really lifted the European team from that moment. They went very, very close in Palm Beach. In fact, if you recall, Bill, that was the occasion when Jack Nicholas, as the American uh, captain, kissed the divot that Lanny yeah. Watkins hit uh, against Jose Canizares to get the winning half point, if you like, uh, to keep the keep the Ryder Cup in, in American hands. And Seve, uh, on that occasion, went into the team room or was in the team room and said, now this is a victory for us because next time we win at the Belfry, yeah. and of course they did win. And uh, from that moment, I think, uh, with Tony in the in the leadership, then followed by Bernard Gallagher, who had worked mm. with Tony very closely to maintain the same team ethic, if you like, and team ethos. Um, I think that has been largely continued throughout all of the the following captains, and I think that that's one of Tony's Tony Jacklin's great legacies that the imprint that he made on the team in the 80s still exists today in this new century. And uh, incredible for a lot of us growing up, uh, it was the excitement was palpable. All of a sudden, the Ryder Cup was one of the sporting events in the world. I mean, Ken, you must be, you know, I'm not diminishing the GB in Northern Ireland versus uh, the USA, but even Tom Weisskopf, the late great Tom, uh, had problems playing in it. Uh, the Americans were so strong. You know, you'd get the odd blue, big Brian Barnes, I think, had a decent record uh, in the Ryder Cup. Uh, and, and the odds, you know, sort of victory, Neil Coles maybe might have pulled the odd thing. There's the odd Irish, John O'Leary. We have all those great people. Um, and, you know, but... It, it was sort of very much GB Northern Ireland and, and the US. I'm not sure how much the US really, was it a bit of a PR thing? All of a sudden, it's moved to one of the sporting events in the world. You, you must think, Ken, to yourself upon reflection, that that's some achievement. Well, and, and I think it goes back to, again, I mentioned Lord Derby uh, earlier, who, uh, of course, uh, was the, Queen's, the late Queen's cousin. Mm. And uh, uh, one of the the great race uh, flat race course uh, rate, uh, racing days is named after him. Uh, his family being the the English Derby, if you like. But his other great love was the Ryder Cup, and without a question of of, of doubt, Bill, 
that Lord Derby's personal friendship with Jack Nicholas really marked the turning point. And, and one could say not only the turning point, but indeed the saviour uh, of the Ryder Cup itself. Because at Lytham in 1977, when, as you say, people like Tom Weisskopf, the great Tom Weisskopf, uh, designer, of course, of, of Loch Lomond, yeah. and himself uh, an, open, an open champion, um, Tom, together with one or two others, was thinking that, you know, the Ryder Cup was not really the be-all and end-all for, for their schedules. They were really interested in, in their, their own careers and adding to their majors. But Lord Derby met with Jack Nicholas at Lytham, and Jack said to Lord Derby very much um, along these lines, Bill, look, for as long as I qualify for the Ryder Cup, I will continue to play. And, and so I think will uh, players like Tom Watson and Tom Kite. But uh, John, he called, he called Lord Derby. They were on first name terms, Bill, which will not surprise you. He no. said, John, the, the, real, the real issue for, for those of us in America is to try to play well enough to qualify for the team. We kind of know that if we make the team, you know, we're going to win. And Jack mm -hmm. never had, he, he still to this day does not have a single arrogant uh, uh, issue in, in, in his mindset. He never has had. His, he let his golf clubs do the speaking for him, the greatest champion uh, of all time. Mm -hmm. And he said to, to John Darby, look, we need to do something. John Jacobs has started the European tour. Why don't we expand it? And of course, from, from, from that moment at Lytham in 77, that marked the, the last of the, the Ryder Cups with only GB and I. And uh, by 1979, uh, with John Jacobs and Billy Casper as captains at the Greenbrier, it was, uh, it, was, it was the United States versus Europe. And from that moment, really, it's gone on and on. And uh, thank goodness that, uh, that uh, Lord Derby and Jack Nicholas had that conversation at Lytham. Yes, and, and uh, thank goodness they did, um, because we've obviously got the Ryder Cup coming up in Rome, uh, which in itself is an amazing, I, I think, uh, iconic um, statement by mm. the European Tour. Um, and, and the teams look fairly evenly matched. I don't think people were saying that, um, you know, two years ago, uh, but it does look as if, uh, it, it's going to be very close. Uh, maybe the rookies, as always, are, are going to, you know, that's going to play a big role for for Europe. Uh, how do you see the Ryder Cup in Rome in October, Ken? Well, I think you've summed it up, Bill. I think it will again be a very close match. Uh, we, we, we've always had the, those issues that on paper, uh, and thank goodness the matches have never been played on paper, and mm -hmm. indeed, as, as this one in, uh, coming up uh, in a matter of a few weeks now in Rome will not be played on paper because by the rankings, um, Europe uh, ought not to probably have won uh, that many Ryder Cups. But of course, uh, um, the reverse is, is true. So I think, I think, as you said, 
the record uh, winning American team uh, from Whistling Straits. Mm. Uh, if people were then thinking about Rome uh, in a couple of years, uh, it been seen as, as virtually an even match. But I think it, it, it will be an even match this year. Uh, Americans are going to try to win for the first time in Europe in 30 years. That in Which itself te tells a, tells, tells a tale when you think of, of the, the strength of uh, a number of the American Ryder Cup teams with their captains that have come and tried uh, since the Belfry in 1993 and been un uh, un unsuccessful. But um, they, they, will, they will bring a tremendously uh, talented and very, very strong away side uh, to, to Rome. Um, the, the final four picks, if you like, uh, on Luke Donald's uh, team, I think will be the key. Uh, mm. it's, it's looking as though that three or four of them, if, if not all of them, Will will be uh, first time first time uh, players there for rookies. Um, I think we saw enough from the Austrian Sepp Stracker at uh, Hoylake, uh, where he finished second equal, uh, mm. having won on the PGA Tour within the, within the past month. That I I suspect he will get one of of those final uh, four four places, and who knows about the others? Perhaps the pol the Polish golfer. Uh, Adrian Moronk may become mm. the first the first uh, uh, pole to play in the Ryder Cup match, having won three times around the world uh, in the last year, and he'd be a very deserving uh, pick pick as well. I think the top eight from the European side virtually uh, pick themselves with Ram, with McElroy, with uh, Tommy Fleetwood, with uh, Fitzpatrick, with Shane Lowry. Uh, and and a, a resurgent Justin Rose uh, amongst mm. amongst that group, yes, maybe Terrell Hatton as well will will be in there. So I think the top eight, uh, with the return of Justin Rose uh, having won in America earlier in the year, um, they, they they're fairly experienced in 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 Ryder Cup matters, and um, I think it will be those last four that uh, may be the determining factor. Yes, well, we're on the same page there, Ken. And, and you mentioned the Belfry. That was an inspired choice to host the Ryder Cup for, for three, three or four, was it, in a row? I'm not quite sure. Yes. Uh, but sir, yeah, yeah. And that was an inspired choice. How did, how did that come about, Ken? Well, that came about because the PGA of GB&I, the founding, partner, the, the, the founding partners uh, with the, the European Tour, uh, now being the managing partner in 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 the Europe uh, Europe's uh, Ryder Cup uh, effort, if you like, they they had a deal with the then owners of of the Belfry um, back in the in in the late seventies um, for the Belfry to be constructed uh, as capable of having multiple Ryder Cups, which it has. I think it's had four Ryder Cups. Uh, yeah. I think it had 85, um, 89, 93, and the delayed match after 9-11, uh, oh. the ones that Sam Torrance and Curtis Strange captain 
which was delayed until September 2002. And it was all because of, of, of the deal and the arrangements that uh, made, made for the PGA of GB&I to have, have their home base there. And of course, it's right in the, right in the middle of, of the country in Birmingham with, with good access from all roads, north, south, east and west. And a hotel on site, so yes, it, it would. It in many ways has been the perfect venue. Yes, I, you know, I, and you may not know this, Ken, but I was involved with the K Club, uh, yes. which then, of course, yes, hosted of course. Uh, the, the the Ryder Cup. I, I was just slightly after, but still, that was still reverberating around, um, and uh, it was similar in the sense a hotel on site, um, Europe had a very strong team but of course that was the Darren Clark um you know the tragedy uh with Heather and the 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 emotion I don't know if there'll be a more emotional Ryder Cup or nearly even sporting event to witness than than the K Club uh did when when hosting the Ryder Cup no, that was, again was very, very special, and and of course for for Darren very poignant in the sense that Heather had passed only a few weeks prior, um, but of course that was again another inspired uh, venue, and uh, again we must pay tribute to uh, Dr. Michael Smurfit, everyone at the K Club, and of course um, the 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 long period of commitment by Board Fulcher in uh, supporting a number of tournaments and in supporting the, the whole Ryder Cup for a period, for, you know, for a, a period of virtually 10 years. That's right. That's right. And uh, um, the European, they call it the European Open, so the Irish Open and then there's Ryder Cup and then the European Open. Uh, and the last European Open, uh, even though it's now had Irish Open since, which Rory has won and there's this year as well coming yeah. up, uh, but the, the European Open was won by Colin Montgomery um, and 2009, eight, something like that. Uh, and uh, that was Colin's last win uh, in Europe. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was very special. I was there for that particular occasion. Uh, and that was a very special occasion. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the K Club. Dr. Smurfit, you mentioned, you know, uh, Sharon, his daughter, Michael, his son, Tony as well. The Smurfit family are terrific people. Uh, Sharon, I saw Sharon about this time last year, slightly later, uh, for the first time in quite a while, her and Emmett, and uh, it was good to catch up. Many good memories. Uh, and Dr. Smurfit, uh, yeah, he, he was another visionary, Ken. We talk about visionaries. Yes. He definitely was, was one of those. Uh, and I could talk about Dr. Smurfit for a whole podcast with many very interesting stories, but I think we'll, yes. we'll, we'll save that for another day. Yes. Um, now, obviously, when you were part of this um, uh, headlining uh, and, and leading the, the, the changes within Europe, uh, European golf, and the strength, the famous five that you've mentioned, did you think, Ken, at any stage that you had close relationships with the PGA. Did you ever think about a world tour? Did you ever think about an amalgamation and a world tour uh, because Europe was in a very strong position? Did that ever enter any of your calculations? Not really, Bill. I mean, we, we, we went further east, as, as you know, uh, when yeah. things, I made reference earlier about the, 
when the Berlin Wall came down, virtually within 12 months of that, that we, we, we saw fortunately and happily the end of the apartheid issues uh, in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. enabled us, that enabled us, if you like, to complete uh, co-sanction arrangements with the, the Sunshine Tour in South Africa. At the same time, we had been able to expand the tour, um, firstly it, it, into North, Northern Africa with Tunisia, with Morocco. Um, the fellas, the, the, the guys on the tournament committee of, of those times, they, they were very far-sighted, Bill. They said mm. to me when I had to ask them uh, if they would permit a Tunisian Open um, to become an official event within the tour. And uh, I, of course, it's long before the days of the internet or even mobile phones. So getting through to the guys um, who were in our winter, if you like, were, were, were strung around the world and getting into communication with them uh, was also quite challenging. But I, I spoke to a number of them who were either on the safari tour or or in South Africa, because, of course, in those days, they couldn't play both. They had to mm. commit to one or the other. And I recall uh, calling a number of them and saying, you know, do you think we could accommodate the Tunisian Open within our official order of merit? And a number of them, or one or two, said, Ken, even you should know that Tunisia is not in Europe. And I said, no, I understand that. And they said, but. And and they, when I said the word but, the fellows, I could almost see them smiling as, as, as indeed you are, Bill. They, they knew or they thought they knew that I maybe had something in mind. And all I said to them, each and everyone on the committee, I said, look, do you want the European tour to be defined solely by its geographic boundary? Or would you prefer to have it defined by the international makeup of its membership? And of course, that was the answer that they that that they wanted. And we we took the Tunisian Open on board. Um, we then uh, got the Moroccans to come in. Then, of course, we were able to get to Dubai and mm. f- further events in in the Middle East, and then to go further further afield with the Asian tour, and then, of course, with the Australasian tour. So, if you like, we were we were always looking to expand to get to that year-round uh, schedule bill. But, and at the same time, I think we always maintain very, very good links with the PGA Tour in, in the States, but we valued, I think, our independence. Yes. And... Uh, uh, that that I think was was important at at the time. Um, so no, I I don't think we saw then uh, perhaps a world tour, but we certainly saw with with Europe as the fulcrum, the rest of the world uh, being a, an alternative, if if you like, to full time uh, play only in America. Yes, it's a very interesting strategic decision, Ken. You know, the all-round golf uh, being won because obviously the UK and Ireland and parts of Europe are restricted uh, in the winter. 
Um, so that seemed like a, a, a smart move. And also to grow the game, which we hear, uh, you know, being bandied about, uh, to, to dominate other parts of the world uh, and bring the European Tour events to the, those parts of the world that maybe uh, were wanted, certainly wanted a golf tournament. Whereas the PGA were confined almost within the USA. So that's yes. sort of, yeah, so that, that sort of, that was their home. Um, they weren't really had any ideas about moving outside of it. Um, America's big enough to to have a 11 month, 12 month, you know, uh, timetable. Uh, so, you know, it was an interesting strategic move, Ken, that probably did tick uh, an awful lot of boxes. Was there anything that you would have liked to have seen that didn't happen, Ken? Well, I think, I think... As Ben Stokes said at the end of the Ashes, when Michael Atherton asked him about their catching or, or, or missed missed uh, catching opportunities and indeed stumping opportunities in the first test, you know, would would he like to to go back? Um, Stokes um, quickly, I think, becoming one of the the great uh, sporting leaders, not yes. not simply just of the England cricket team, but it, it, in any sport, he just said to Michael. And smiled as he said it. Hindsight is a is a great thing, isn't it? But of but of course you would always have have wanted uh, to go a, a, a one step further, uh, Bill, and and try to do more. That was a working ethos, if you like, to leave try to leave no stone unturned. Firstly, to get to that all round schedule, uh, which mm. which I think we we did manage to achieve. Yes. We, we had the privilege of having the, the late, great Mark Wilson, who wrote golf for the Daily Express for many, many decades. And uh, when he retired from the Express newspapers, we got him to set up really what became our first full-time media department at the European Tour. And uh, he, 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 he coined, I think, a wonderful phrase for us, uh, and that was simply opportunity and incentive. Opportunity was the idea that we would give enough open golf tournaments on a on a almost a forty week a year basis. An incentive was to try to grow the prize monies, and that that yeah. was, if you like, our missive. That's what we tried to do, and only yourselves and and others can look back and say uh, if we achieved what we set out to try and do well I, I, yes and indeed and, and i think that uh, a very exciting time which lock lomond i'm delighted was was part of and um, there was a period in the 80s ken that u.s players were debating whether to come to play in the open uh, yeah. if you can recall and yeah. i always I, I kind of always wondered what happened you know, it, it it didn't last very long. Tom still kept coming over and Jack, but there was this sort of slight dissension amongst the ranks of the U.S. players. Can you shed any light on on what happened there, Ken? No, oh, I've I've a feeling it may have been. It, 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 I wondered if it was around one of the opens at at Royal St George's, which was was maybe not blessed by the the best weather, uh, and. Perhaps their feelings that that particular golf course at that time 
mm. was not their favourite, um, perhaps on on the open ro rotation. But uh, I I can't believe that in you know with with as you said earlier, from the moment really that Arnold first came in 1960 for the centenary open, and then uh, Jack started coming. Very soon thereafter, then Tom Watson. We had the the days of of Trevino. We had the days, of course, of Tom Weisskopf at at Troon in '73, and all of the great Americans. I I think I I've, I'd be very very surprised if if there was any kind of move um, to, if you like, so-called boycott the Open Championship in any great numbers. And uh, I think, as as you've said. I mean, my goodness, we had Tom Watson nearly at the age of 60 tying for the, 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 the claret jug in 2009 at Turnbury. And uh, that, was a, that was the evening, wasn't it, when the galleries went very, very quiet and sombre and nothing yes. against Stuart Zink, but they just all wanted Tom Watson to win. That's that's right, and it was a period where Americans were winning the Open. Mark Kalkavecki, uh, yes. I was speaking with uh, Mark, um, not that long ago, uh, and he was reminiscing, and uh, you know, he, he, you know, reminding me of certain things that that had occurred. And uh, so Americans were winning the Open. It wasn't as if you know, uh, yeah. uh, maybe more. It was more of a press thing than actual facts. But it just sticks in my memory that yes. there was just a, a little small period of time where the Americans were sort of slightly more some of them were slightly more reticent in coming mm. across but uh, uh anyway we we sure got over that and and moved on we've you know and, and well done to brian Harmon for what a performance oh, yeah. what a performance from Harmon ken well that was uh, totally dominant you... wasn't it i mean that yeah. that was uh, and i i did see a very uh a very uh nice and a, a and a very illuminating article by lee westwood i think in the daily Telegraph right. saying that it may, saying that Brian Harmon's win may have been a slight surprise to a number of of pundits, but not in the locker room, not amongst his peers, because uh, although not a, a serial winner uh, of, of of tournaments, he certainly has been for many many years, probably for a decade, a serial contender with a wonderful yeah. golf game, as, as he demonstrated from start to finish at, uh, at, at Hoylake, hitting virtually, uh, hitting virtually every fairway and holding all of the putts that really mattered. And we will see him in the Ryder Cup, and that's going to be another level for him. Uh, and, and, you know, many are saying that's a platform that will suit him. I think Zach Johnson will be will be uh, waiting to to get uh, Brian Harmon, the Open champion, into the first set of foursomes without question, with with a game as straight as as he hits it, uh, and certainly did at at Hoylake with his trademark in in the fairway, always in play, and he's holding out. He'll be a dream four, foursomes partner, I think, for whoever. Um, Zach, uh, as American captain, wants to pair him with. Yes, indeed. We're looking forward to that. So we, we've talked about the tour under your stewardship and how it's grown and the, some of the people involved. Uh, and then we come to uh, golf has been serenely growing and moving 
along without much controversy, the odd thing, but that's fine, then live appear on the scene, Ken. Has it been, do you think, good for the game or has it all to unfold in front of us uh, and uh, and be more positive than what is being portrayed as? Well, Bill, I think unquestionably the, the winners um, are and will become even more so the tournament, uh, the elite tournament professionals. I think we've seen that already. And uh, my understanding, even as we speak on this podcast, Bill, is that there's a task force apparently uh, in place to try to find a way forward um, in terms of trying to reward those uh, PGA Tour players and presumably also maybe European Tour players and Corn Ferry Tour players who stayed loyal, if you like, to the existing uh, tours uh, in in the face of uh, the Saudis' arrival. Um, So I think the the biggest single plus will be in the the, um, earnings uh, both from this moment uh, and looking forward for the next two or three years for the elite players worldwide. So I think on that basis, um, you would have to say that it that that it's pretty positive. Now, is it sustainable? Only time will tell on that front, uh, Bill. I, I mean, I'm 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 sure that the the, the Saudis um, will have through their public investment fund virtually unlimited resources uh, oh. but of course no resource is totally unlimited hmm. over the long haul yes it's going to be interesting to see how um as you say it plays out and who the personalities are going to emerge from it because with something like this there are people who all of a sudden become front-facing and you know they have to deliver the message to the players um, Ernie Els was quite critical recently. He felt mm. the players were out of the loop. So, as you, um, which is very interesting, Ken, um, you know, have alluded to that there is obviously a task force now trying to pull all the strings together uh, and uh, and then present this uh, pa- package to the players and the public. Uh, and and um, you know, I think it's going to be an exciting period. Uh, and another change within uh, the world of golf? Without question, Bill. I mean, I think uh, I'm not sure that they will be able to uh, to mend all of the fences, if you like, between now and December 31, which is their stated intent. Let, let's hope uh, for the good of the game that uh, wise counsel will, will find that to be possible. I personally have always taken to the view or expressed, I think, again, very eloquently by another great champion and a great Irish champion, that of Podrick Harrington, our double mm. open champion and USPGA champion from the mid uh, uh, f- around the, the time of 2007 uh, And when people asked him for the first time to comment regarding live, he simply said, I'm pretty sure paraphrasing what Podring said at the time, look, Liv is probably not for me, but those of my friends who've moved over will remain my friends. 
And he forecast at that time that if down the line there was a match to be played by those who'd moved to live and the existing tours and there was money to be made, then they would probably have that match. Now, I think yeah. things, things hopefully are maybe moving a little faster than than Podrick was thinking back in back in earlier months, if you like. But um, that that was his view then. And I thought that was, how shall we say, that was wise counsel, I think, for a lot of people, those of us like yourself and myself, and particularly the players who've been involved. And uh, I am sure uh, it's going to come up in this podcast uh, time again. I, I, we've got a couple of... Uh, interesting people as well as yourself uh, who are coming on and, and I'm sure the subject will continue to evolve. Ken, you, you've been tremendous, absolutely tremendous giving us your time. I know it's precious and, you know, I'm not sure how many interviews you actually do, Ken, but, you know, uh, we, we really, really appreciate it. Now, to try and stress and get this across for maybe some of the, the younger generation, the influence that Ken Schofield has had on the world of golf um, is it's difficult to describe and find the hyperboles to to try and and, and you know get across the change, the growth, uh, how many people have benefited uh, from Ken's leadership and and vision. Um, it, it really is an incredible story, Ken. That that your involvement and what has happened from the time you started on the 1st of January 1975. An amazing period, an amazing growth, 31 years. Is there anything or a couple of stories or anything out of that time that you keep sort of reminding yourself about? Is there something that you'd like to share? Well, I think uh, today, uh, Bill, in in terms of, uh, as you said, Today's uh, view and voice is from the loch. And you yourself are now a uh, uh, top man at Loch Lomond Golf Club. And I have, have a story that goes back to probably even before uh, that meeting that I referenced near Heathrow Airport when Jim MacDonald introduced us uh, um, to Lyle and to Phil, Phil Schneider. And that was on a day that George O'Grady and myself took a late plane from Heathrow to Edinburgh to go through to uh, Glen Eagles, where the Bell Scottish Open was in progress. And as we went to check in at the front desk, we saw sitting, I wouldn't say snoozing, but I would say quite soon to go to bed, the late, great Tom Weisskopf, yeah. who was playing in that Bell Scottish Open. And I don't know whether it had been the first day or maybe the second day, but he wanted to talk to us, not about the Bell Scottish Open and his play, but he wanted to talk to us about Loch Lomond and the sight that he felt and has said, uh, I think, on many occasions and in print, that it was the greatest sight that he'd ever had the opportunity to work. And that was that night and that story of meeting Tom. And I'm sure if George was on 
the podcast today and not maybe at Sunningdale Golf Club where he's a trustee. Um, yeah. He would, he would uh, second our story because he and I listened intently to Tom Weisskopf telling us about Loch Lomond. And from that moment on, if you like, it left an indelible mark uh, on our futures. Gosh, well, what a great story. I know the members of Loch Lomond would be delighted to hear that, Ken. And we're delighted to have had your company for practically an hour, which is incredible to give an insight uh, into the game of golf uh, and the man that is Ken Schofield, who achieved so much for the game we all adore and love. Ken, you will always, your legacy is uh, just incredible. Uh, and I think you should be, and I'm sure you are, very, very proud of, of what you've achieved and uh, what you've done for the world of golf and European golf in particular. Ken Schofield, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time, for your courtesy. And please give, when you see Lyle, Missy, and hopefully Phil Schneider, please give them my very best wishes and uh, continued health and success for them all. Thank you. Thank you.